Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, those of you online. You missed it. I know you got to see the kids, but there's just something about being in the room with all those kids and all that energy and the palms and all of that. It was just great. It reminded me of parades. How many of you like parades? Raise your hand if you like a good parade. I love a good parade. We grew up on Main Street in our community, and so the parade went right by our house. And parades always remind me of summer, right? And I know it's been a long winter hasn't it? But it does feel like spring is around the corner. I'm preaching in a springy shirt. I'm even, you know, going short sleeve today. Just like, come on, spring. Next weekend is Easter, and it's supposed to be 60 degrees, like a six. Not a a negative, but a six, you know, 60 degrees. So when we think about parades, though, you know, I just think about the, the joy, the community, like everybody's doing the same thing at the same time. And parades have that unifying aspect to them that is really uh, exciting and encouraging. And, you know, there was candy and there were cool cars and it just felt like everybody was on the same page. And I like that about parades. And so as we continue our Kingdom Culture Series today, we're actually kind of coming around the home stretch. There's just this week and next week uh, that we'll be in this series. And then we'll be starting a new series um, on Kingdom Families. But In this series, we have been looking at characteristics of the kingdom culture, recognizing that the kingdom culture is different than the culture around us, that that it should be anyway, and, uh, and, and it should be able to influence the culture around us. So we've been talking about putting the kingdom first in our lives so that as we go out into the world around us, we can influence that world for Christ. We can get the kingdom culture into the world around us. So we don't want to separate completely from it, and we don't want to blend in completely. We want to stand out, but do so in a powerful way. So far, we've looked at this idea that kingdom culture is Christ-centered, that kingdom culture is a serving culture, and that last week, kingdom culture is a prayerful culture, that Jesus was always praying and, and communicating with God, and we have that same invitation to communicate with God. Just have to celebrate over 60 people, set aside time this weekend for our 24 hours of prayer, and came to the church to pray in the sanctuary, pray throughout the church. Uh, so if things felt a little different to you walking in this morning, that would be a, a reason why. And if you've never been a part of 24 hours of prayer, watch for the next one. We'll be doing one probably around June. And I would encourage you to set aside some time and to come and separate from the world out there to draw close to God so that then we can go back into the world around us. Now, we're leaving a lot on the table in a series titled Kingdom Culture that's five week long. There's a lot of things, a lot of subjects that we're not going to be able to to cover. And this is one of the challenges that I feel as a pastor uh, that, that you just, anything you talk about, there's so much to say, Right? And so we're leaving a lot on the table. There's a lot of hallmarks of kingdom culture that we're not going to get to in this series. And so that means that you have to be in your daily time with God, in your Bible reading, in your banding together reading, be looking for other hallmarks of the kingdom culture and asking God to help you incorporate those into your own life so that you can then incorporate them into the lives of others. Today we're going to be looking at humility And as we think about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the call to worship this morning, we we read some of those verses that even in triumph, Jesus modeled humility. And humility was front and center in his life. And it's important to define humility at the outset when we're going to talk about it, because sometimes humility, we associate it with weakness, we associate it with 
self-deprecation or low self-esteem, but the best definition that I have heard of humility is that it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less often because you're thinking of others. You're putting others first. You're, you're not, you don't have low self-esteem. You can have very good self-esteem and be a very humble person that puts others first and is considering others and not really thinking of yourself and how things impact you first, but thinking of others first. Now, last week I made a comment that kingdom culture was both compelling and contagious. It was compelling in the sense that it got people's attention. It was compelling. When the the people back in the first century, as the church was just getting off the ground, when they established kingdom culture in their community, in their fellowship, it was compelling to the world around them. They said, what is going on with that group of people? And it was contagious. And when we talk about humility, we're talking about something that we identify as a virtue today, but that when Jesus was walking around on the earth, it was not considered a virtue. Humility was considered weakness. It was equated with weakness or with a low position, and nobody would voluntarily humble themselves in a dog-eat-dog world like first-century Roman culture. And sociologists and psychologists have pointed to Jesus of Nazareth as the hinge when humility became a virtue. Prior to that, the philosophers, they all kind of said it's to be avoided. You don't necessarily have to be prideful, but you shouldn't be humble. And after Jesus lived and died and rose again, humility became a virtue. And the early church taught about humility. And it went from being a detriment or a drawback or a weakness to now, even today, it's considered extremely desirable, not just in a church context, but also in a secular context. Philosophers started to talk about the value of humility and the power of humility in connecting with people. And even today, if you look at the business world and you look at some of the most popular, highest-selling books in the business and leadership world, you'll see books like Good to Great, calling out the value and the virtue of humility. In fact, in that book, Jim Collins writes about five levels of leadership and that there are level five leaders and level four leaders. There are level five organizations and level four and three and two and one organizations. He said the number one characteristic that differentiates a level four leader who is very competent, who has decent character, who is a good communicator, and a level five leader that is the top level of leadership. They said the number one character trait that differentiates level four from level five, that differentiates good from great, is humility. That a leader who sees himself or herself as serving the organization, serving the people that report to them in humility is a level five leader. And level five organizations are filled with level five leaders. Instead of the traditional model that says the leaders at the top and the whole organization exist to serve the leader, level five leaders invert the pyramid. And they say, no, I am here to serve. And I am here to equip people to serve and to equip people to serve and to equip people to serve. And so humility is a trait. In fact, even on the personal level, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the number one selling business books of all time, three of the seven habits have to do with humility. That one of those is to think win-win, not just what's in it for me, not how do I get what I want, but think win-win. How can we come together and both of us win instead of only one of us win? There's some humility mixed in with that. My favorite of the seven habits is, is to think about how you can understand, seek to understand, not just to be understood. That's humility. 
It doesn't say I'm just going to get louder or use more power or more force in making my point so that you will understand me, but how can I seek to understand you, not just be understood by you? There's humility involved in that. And then the, the other one is synergy. That synergy, when we all kind of have the big goal in mind, when there's synergy and we're all working for the same things and, and we each bring our best to the table, that's kind of a picture of the kingdom of God. That synergy involves humility. That it's not just about me, but it's about we. It's about what can we accomplish together, not just what can I do. And so we see humility in the world out there as being valuable, and it's particularly compelling, I would say, in a me-first world, in a me-first culture, that humility stands out. Humility is compelling today, just as it was back then. Humility draws people in, and it's contagious. You see, when I put others first, when I put you first, then you have the opportunity to do the same. But if we're all just looking out for number one, if we're all just looking out for ourselves, then each of us has one person concerned with us, right? Right? If you're looking out for you and I'm looking out for me, then I've got one person looking out for me and you've got one person looking out for you. But if we all decide to look out for one another and to care for one another, then suddenly in a room like this, I've got over 100 people looking out for me. And you've got 100 people looking out for you. And this is the way that the Christian community was designed to function, that we're all looking out for one another, not just for ourselves, which means that we all have a lot of people looking out for us. And so as we enter Holy Week, we see the humility of Jesus front and center. It's Palm Sunday, so we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. We're going to talk about this big parade, this impromptu parade that was thrown for Jesus and how even in that moment of triumph, even when all eyes are on him, he's presenting himself as a humble servant, not as this conquering king. And then after the Limelight is off of him after the crowds have dispersed. When he's one-on-one -on -one with his heavenly father in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see humility at the core of who Jesus was. And in looking at Jesus, we see the essence of true humility. And lastly, as we have done each week, we will look at an early church teaching where Paul speaks to a congregation, a fellowship of believers, and highlights the value of humility and encourages them to pursue it themselves. So let's start with Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. If you're in the sanctuary here, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. Turn to page 1531. If you brought your own Bible or you're joining us online, I don't know what page number it is. But Matthew is at the beginning of the New Testament. So about two-thirds, three-fourths of the way into your Bible, you'll see uh, the book of Matthew. And we're going to be in chapter 21. And the context here for Matthew 21 is that this is the final week of Jesus' life. And it's interesting to me that in the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over a third of the content of each Gospel is focused on Holy Week. That this final week of Jesus' life, the things that he taught, the things that he did, the places that he went, and the lives that he touched, over a third of what we know about Jesus comes in the context of Holy Week. And so as I read through this passage, I want to encourage you to pretend you haven't heard it before. Even though we opened the service with some of the same passages, or you've been coming to Palm Sunday services all your life, don't let the familiarity cause you to kind of tune out. Lean in and listen to it with fresh ears. Because we're told that as they, as the disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once 
You will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send you or send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, triumphal entries and this sort of impromptu parade was not that uncommon in the, in the ancient world. This was something that happened on a regular basis, really, when a king would lead his armies out and return from those, army, uh, from those battles in victory, they would have a triumphal entry. And when you go around Europe, if you ever have an opportunity to do that, or if you've studied the art, there are arches that get built to commemorate some of these parades, some of these triumphal entries. If you've ever seen movies uh, where they are coming back from war, in fact, there's art that uh, has pictured one of these type of triumphal entries. Vespasian, when he conquered uh, on a military conquest, he returned to Rome, and there's art that was made to, to commemorate this or to picture what this was like. And you see this example of military power, military might. You see war horses and stallions, you know, and that's, that's what this was all about. This was a celebration, and this was an example or a, a feature of the military power of the conquering king. In the Old Testament, we see King David returning the ark to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when he danced before the Lord with all his might. It was a triumphal entry. It was We've gone. We got the ark. We're bringing it back. And there's a celebration. And there's unity around that. And everybody's excited. But there's something different about Jesus' triumphal entry. There's something that doesn't quite fit the mold of the ancient world. And we see it in verse 5. As this passage is quoted from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle. And riding on a donkey, not even an adult donkey, on the, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not a stallion, not a display of military power, not a celebration of conquest, but of the bringing of peace. You see, the donkey was a fairly humble animal, <laughs> and Jesus comes to them, we're told, gentle and riding on a donkey. And the Hebrew word that is translated into the New Testament as gentle is a word that means poor, afflicted, humble, and lowly. Not elevated, not wealthy, not strong and displaying its power. The Greek word used there is praus. It, it means strength under control. It's what we translate as gentle or meek. It has nothing to do with weakness. It has to do with strength and power that has been willingly subjugated, brought under the control of another. And that's what Jesus displays for us in the triumphal entry. He comes gentle, humble, lowly. 
and riding on a donkey, a symbol of the peace that he comes to bring. And I wonder if they remembered the invitation that he had issued a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. He doesn't say come to me the best and the brightest, come to me those of you who have climbed to the top of the pile in this world, but he says come to me all you who are weary, who are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and lowly in heart. Learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus had issued this invitation, and even in his final week of his life, even in this triumphal entry, he's displaying the humility that he lived with and that he called us to live with. And so that's the spotlight. But you ever wonder sometimes if somebody is the same off stage as they are on stage? You ever wonder that? I think we live in a world that is making us more and more skeptical that, that people are the same in the limelight as they are when the lights have dimmed. And fortunately, we don't have to wonder with Jesus. We have a, a backstage pass to what he was really like. Just a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus completely alone, praying to God in anguish. He's gone through the Last Supper with his disciples. He's been teaching them. In the various gospels, there are teachings that, that Jesus is giving them these final bits of information things that they need to know, things they need to understand. And then he leads them to a garden, a place called Gethsemane. And that's significant because Gethsemane literally means olive press. He's about to be crushed, completely crushed. And he goes to a place where they pressed olives, where they crushed olives so that the oil could come out. And we pick up in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39, that when Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And this is the essence of true humility. This is the night of his betrayal. This is moments before Judas arrives with the party that has the torches and the clubs, and things are set in motion that culminate with Jesus on a cross. And in this moment, completely alone. Three times he goes and he prays this prayer. And in the intervening spaces, he comes to find the disciples asleep. Even the big three, Peter, James, and John, are sleeping as he is completely and utterly alone. And in each of those prayers, he says the same thing. Not my will but yours be done. That's what love does. That's what sacrifice does. That's what humility does. There is a death to self that we have to come to. 
It's easy to jump on to the parade route and, and to think that life with Jesus is just going to be one consistent parade where he leads us in triumphal procession. And everything's up and to the right. And yet, we also have to be willing to follow Jesus into the Gethsemanes, into the olive press, into the seasons of life that will crush us and say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. The sacrifice of ourselves, the death to self, when we put our preferences on the altar and we surrender those and we say, God, not my will, but your will be done. To follow Jesus is to follow him in both of those examples, knowing that there will be a final triumph that will be for all people at all times that have named the name of Jesus, that we will be ushered into an eternity with him. But before, between now and then, there will be Gethsemanes, and there will be times when we have to surrender our preferences. We have to die to ourselves. And so we see here in Jesus, both in the triumphal entry and in the Garden of Gethsemane, that kingdom culture is a humble culture. Kingdom culture is a humble culture. This is our bottom line today. Kingdom culture puts God's will first, just like Jesus did. It puts others second, and it puts ours third. It puts God's first. It puts God first. It puts others second. It puts us third. In reality, we should never be higher on the pecking order than third. <laughs> And that is very countercultural to the world around us. That's very countercultural to much of the American dream. And it's interesting that the, the original title for this series, when I was thinking about it, praying through it during my sabbatical, feeling like God really wanted us to be focused on living countercultural lives, was going to be the title was going to be countercultural, not kingdom cultural, or, or not kingdom culture. And as I continued to pray through what the whole year was going to look like, this idea that, that we really need to focus on the kingdom for like a whole year, that there's something that happens when we give sustained, intentional interest and attention to a specific subject. And so the kingdom theme came, and I realized it's not just about being countercultural. It's about having kingdom culture. We can't just be content to be different. We have to be intentional on living a kingdom culture in our lives and in the world around us. Because so much of the world around us, so much of the American dream, if you want to call it that, is to do what you love, to follow your heart, to have it your way all the time, to accumulate wealth and independence so that you'll have autonomy and security, which aren't bad things in and of themselves. But if we're not careful, we can craft a world where we seldom truly sacrifice where we just make it comfortable and we give enough but not at a level of true sacrifice, not at a level that puts God first, that puts others first. And we just become comfortable. And Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And there's nothing comfortable about a cross. <laughs> And so his goal was not our comfort. His goal was our transformation. His goal was that we would be changed and become like him. And so that involves humility. That involves putting God first. That involves putting others first. Much of the time, that involves surrendering our preferences. And when Paul teaches on this, when Paul writes to a church, 
to encourage them and to celebrate what's going well and to correct anything that might have gotten off course. He writes to one of his favorite churches, and we know it's one of his favorite churches because he calls them the jewel in his crown. He doesn't say that about everybody. If you're reading Corinthians right now, and you have been in our Banding Together journals, if you're reading that reading list, you know that Paul and the church at Corinth had some issues. But the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, man, it's like everything was up and to the right with Paul and the church of Philippi. And they really got it, and they got it right away, and they were great and faithful followers and great supporters of his ministry. But in chapter 2 of the church, of the, the letter of Philippians, in chapter 2, if you want to turn there, or it's going to be on the screens, he opens up this dialogue with them, and he underscores the importance of humility and Christ-likeness in their behavior. He starts this out in, in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, that kind of sounds like this, the, the parade version of following Christ, right? Like who doesn't want encouragement? Who doesn't want comfort? Who doesn't want fellowship and tenderness and compassion? He's saying, if you've experienced these things, then here's what you can do for me. Then make my joy complete, he says. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And his deep desire for the church that he loved is that they would do these things, that they would be like-minded, that they would be one in spirit and purpose, that they would have the same love. And then he transitions into perhaps the best New Testament definition of humility that we have. In verse 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so this is very countercultural. This was countercultural then, and this is countercultural now. This is not necessarily how the world out there seems to work. And he doesn't just say, consider others as good as yourselves. But he says, consider others as better than yourselves. Put them first, not just equal to you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's a whole lot of selfish ambition and vain conceit out in the world out there. But it shouldn't be in here. And we should be taking this humility to the world out there. And instead, it seems to be invading the church more and more. And we see the culture invading the church instead of the church invading the culture. But Jesus is presenting a different way. And Paul points to Jesus next. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's basically saying, here's what you're to do. You're to live like Jesus. You live like Jesus in the world out there. You live like Jesus in the fellowship of the church. You have the same mind, the same attitude as Jesus, who humbled himself, who took the nature of a servant because kingdom culture is a servant culture. And then he concludes with the why. That's the what. Live like Jesus. Here's the why. Because therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been exalted. 
even though he humbled himself. Old Testament tells us repeatedly that God brings low the proud and arrogant and elevates the humble. So when we choose to humble ourselves, Scripture tells us God elevates us, exalts us. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. That's not why you do it. But we do it knowing that eventually we will be exalted. Eventually we will be taken up into heaven. Eventually we will have an eternity in heaven with God where there will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we do it because eventually every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we might as well do it now. Because those who do it voluntarily are ushered into eternity with him. They receive the gift of God's grace rather than the wages of their sin. And we get the opportunity as we come to him, as we lay ourselves at the foot of the cross and we plead the blood of Jesus and we confess our sins and we receive his grace and forgiveness, he says, get up, let's go. Let's go tell more people. Let's go find more people. Let's go serve more people. Let's go bring more people. We want as many as possible to be here. It is the kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. He desires that none would perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we bow, and we confess, and we receive his forgiveness, and we join him in his kingdom mission. Because kingdom culture is a humble culture. That's our, our, our bottom line today. That the king of kings and lord of lords was a humble king. He was a humble Lord. That's very countercultural. That's not what you normally think of. And we see it today, even in his triumph, he modeled humility. Even as he faced the cross, he surrendered his preference completely to God. He came to follow, he came to serve. And so if we are followers of Jesus, we follow him, we serve alongside him, we humble ourselves. You really can't follow Jesus without humility. And that's why Paul tells us to pray for his mind, to pray for his attitude, to live our lives like him, to come to him as he invited us to do, and to learn from him, and to find rest for our souls. So as we respond today, we're going to be responding by participating in communion. And I don't know that there's really a better way to do the response to a message like this or to this Palm Sunday or to Gethsemane than by partaking of the body and blood of Christ. And so as we transition into communion, there's a couple things I want you to know, especially if you're new here. First is that we, op we serve an open communion at Linwood. And that means that you don't have to be a member. You don't have to go through some formal process in order to participate in communion. Our only requirement is the same requirement that Jesus had, that as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of him. So if you name the name of Jesus, if you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, and you can participate in communion in remembrance of him, then you're welcome to join with us as well. If you have children that are with you today, they're welcome at the table as well, as long as you're confident that they understand what's going on. And so as we often do, we're going to have a little space in the service here where you can come and receive the elements a song will be sung. You can participate in singing that song, but I would encourage everybody to spend some time in self-reflection and self-examination, asking God to show, is there anything that has come between you and him? And then to confess that, to receive his forgiveness so that you can partake of communion with 
clean hands and a pure heart. One significant change in how we're doing this today has to do with our children being here this morning. We don't have our communion table right down front. And so you may have noticed we have the two tables on the side and then we have two tables in the back. So what we're going to ask you to do if you're in the first four rows, maybe five, we'll kind of feel that out. First four or five rows, come down to the front to receive the elements, return to your seats, hold them until all have been served. I'll return and we'll partake of them together. If you're seated along the back wall or in those last two or three rows, then we'd ask you to go to the back and receive your communion from the back stations. And we'll work it out. If one runs out, we'll try to shuffle things around. (laughs) But we want all to be served. We want all to have an opportunity to participate. And when all have returned to their seats, I'll come back up and lead us in that. But for now, let's pray as we prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your humility. We are thankful that you put us first, that you surrendered your life, even unto death. And may we do the same, Lord. May we be a people who respond in faith. May we be a people who pursue you pursue having the same mind as you. And Lord, in these next few moments, show us if there's anything that we need to confess, anything that we need to lay down at the foot of the cross, anything that we need to offer up to you and receive your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.